0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward today to be interviewing Dr. Greg Wolfe about his book titled The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, A Natural History, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, with the paperback having just come out in 2022, which is very exciting. Um, And this book, as the title suggests, tells the story of the rise and fall of ancient cities from the end of the Bronze Age to the beginning of the Middle Ages. This is a massive book that covers a ton of different things and really helpfully weaves it together. Um, There's not a section kind of going, here's all the politics stuff or here's all the agricultural bits or here's all the thoughts about evolution. It really is um, a holistic book that addresses all these different things um, in a really coherent way, both for specialists on the topic um, and for interested people perhaps like myself, who maybe don't study ancient cities that often. Um, So I'm really excited to welcome you, Greg, to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Miranda.
1: Could we start off, please, with an introduction of yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Um, Well, I'm currently a professor of ancient history at the University of California in Los Angeles and also a member of the Cotson Institute for Archaeology and um, the the Department of Classics. And my academic history over the last 20, 30 years has woven between those three, between archaeology, ancient history, and classics. And I suppose if you work on the ancient world, as I do, you end up talking about cities all the time in one context or another. And so this has been at the back of my mind for a long time. But the real starting point, I think, was Many years ago, when Barry Cundiff set up a degree in archaeology and anthropology at the University of Oxford, where I had my first proper post, he recruited a whole bunch of us to teach huge, overarching topics of the kind we wouldn't normally do. And one of them was state formation, urbanisation, right from the very beginning through to um, the end of the, uh, the, of the pre-modern period. And that got me thinking, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And um, this book was an opportunity to... Pull some of this together as well as obviously with a lot of other things I've been doing since then.
1: Hmm. That makes sense. I think sometimes um, projects are often sparked by sort of a challenge that you didn't necessarily think you were ready for and then going, oh, hang on a second. Now I'm thinking of all these different things. Um, So it's always cool to understand a bit kind of where projects come from.
0: I'd love oh, to. Absolutely, I mean, it's uh, I often think that you only really know if you understand something properly if you feel you can teach it and answer <laughs> questions on it from from students. And um, and I think yeah, that, that's definitely been my, my my experience in this area.
1: Definitely, um, that's been my experience in a lot of things. Um, and I think quite often good books come out of teaching um, when you sort of have that as an audience or a thing that you know that you might use it for or it might be used for. Um, and so to kind of illustrate some of the breadth of the book. We're obviously not going to be able to go into every aspect, unfortunately. Um, I want to do a little bit of a tour around kind of some of the high points or some of the highlights to get a feel for what's in the book. But in order to do that, I think we do need to kind of start at the beginning with what you mean by the word city in this context.
0: Archaeologists have been wondering what a city is for a long time. and really... V. Gordon Child is, I suppose, the person we tend to go back to, and as others like Michael Smith have pointed out since, a lot of the things that Child identified as characters of the city are similar to the things other people characterise the state. So we're looking at complicated societies. They are sedentary societies. They have agriculture, Um, and maybe lots of other things as well, but the idea of mobile cities doesn't really play. And they are Little no- nodes of concentration of population, and um, they sit in landscapes which are not urban. So you can't have a city on its own. A city is always half of something else: the city and the country, so the city and the hinterland. And they are more complicated. Different kinds of people, different kinds of roles, a wider range of activities. Um, they arise in all sorts of different ways, probably. Um, but once they arise, they do things in fairly similar ways. They have to have ways to bring the populations together. They have to have a sense of community that goes beyond that of the village. Or the, even large villages um, have to create a sense of community. And as um, uh, Graeber and Wengrow pointed out, that this sense of community with large numbers of people uh, applies to hunter-gatherer societies and others. But cities are slightly more different diff- Slightly different to this. They, they involve a permanent coexistence, not a sort of periodic coexistence. And uh, they almost always seem to end up with inequalities of wealth, inequalities of power. And I suppose the most striking thing to me is that structures like this have popped up again and again. It's not the case there was an invention of cities, which was then imitated by people nearby and then by people further away. There wasn't like a sort of virus spreading through the matrix of human existence. People have invented cities on every continent apart from Antarctica. They've done it in complete ignorance of other people's urbanistic attempts. And yet the cities all look a little bit similar. They all have some, particularly from an archaeological point of view, they have some recurrent features, clusters of stuff. They have to solve similar problems, provisioning and getting rid of their waste. They... Have organizing spaces. They usually have collective buildings as well as others. And this is true in the Andes and it's true um, in China and it's true in North India and it's true in um, Iran and it's true in Mesopotamia and Egypt and Europe and anywhere else in Amazonia as well. Um, These kind of structures keep popping up again and again and they've been doing it for the last 6,000 years, my. UCLA colleague Monica Smith talks about the last the first 6,000 years of urbanism. And so for me, the, the city is a recurrent social form, which cities vary enormously, but they are rec- it's not difficult to recognize when, when you spot one. And this has been the case, not just for modern um, analysts, for anthropologists, archaeologists, but if we look at the accounts of writers like Marco Polo, Ibn Battuta, Ibn Khaldun, if you think about the conquistadores um, making that first exploration of areas of the New World, they did. They had no doubt when they saw a city. There was, there was. They recognised it to me. It was a familiar form. So that's that's what a city means to me.
1: Mm. And I think that the idea that it was created, um, as you said, in many places on every continent except Antarctica, is really interesting and when I read that in the book I was really glad that you then um, discussed a lot more of like why you think that is and sort of how that could be true um, and I was wondering if you could kind of tell us about your thoughts on this the idea of humans being pre-adapted to city life.
0: Uh, yes it's in some ways it's a no-brainer there, there've been humans for uh, humans like us for several hundred thousand years um, but cities only in the very later stages. Um, so so it's not the case that as soon as you have modern humans, they're kind of predestined to live in cities, and evolution doesn't work that way anyway. It doesn't represent a, a plan for future development. It has, there's no master plan in our individual genes or our collective social mores. But there are a lot of things about humans that evolve for other reasons that make us very good at living in cities. And one analogy I often think of is the um, analogy of dinosaurs and feathers, that dinosaurs didn't evolve feathers in order to fly, but once they had feathers, um, that made the experiments in flight a bit easier. So most of the things that make us good at living in cities are things that, emerged in quite other environments for other purposes. So one might include among them a capacity to engage in sociality with large groups of people. This is something primatologists have been interested in for some time, that um, by and large primates are selected, have been selected to develop complicated social relations with hundreds of individuals. So that's something that helps a lot if you live in close quarters. Um, We're not picky eaters, most of us, after childhood anyway. Um, We can manage in all sorts of trophic regimes. And this helps a lot because cities tend to be, at least early cities, trophically impoverished. So uh, we have to manage on, um, well, in the case of most early urban civilizations, high-carbohydrate diets, um, which are not fantastically good for us. James C. Scott's Against the Grain comes to mind, but lots of people have made this point. But you can actually manage this way. And so you can put humans into close contact and have them um, eat a a diminished and impoverished range of foods, but they still survive. What else makes us good at living in cities? Well, Um, We're bipedal, we've got um, binocular vision, we operate quite happily in three dimensions. Again, that wasn't evolved for living in cities, that's part of our primate and pre-primate inheritance. But it makes us easier to navigate these horizontally compact and vertically complex environments that, that, that cities constitute. So there's a whole range of things like that which make us... Good at living in cities. I mean, immediately we should say we're not the only creatures good at living in cities. I mean, most of those things we share with rats. Rats are also not fussy eaters. They're good at a different kind of mass sociality. Um, uh, They can exist in all sorts of physical environments, We're quite compact and so on. And there's other animals too. But what this gives us collectively, I think, is it gives us a kind of urban potential that other... Lineages don't have. It's quite difficult to imagine a wildebeest creating cities or um, vultures creating cities. Um, it'd be difficult to imagine um, a city created by sharks. They're perhaps a bit easier to imagine a city created by octopuses. So, a lot of these, a lot of these features that emerged in completely different situations, have given us a capacity. They can be co-opted. They can be used by urbanizers to make us live well in cities.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I do think that the comparison with rats is worth considering um, that it's not humans uniquely um, that are well-suited perhaps, or have, as you said, urban potential. But that does then raise the question of, as you said, we've, there have been humans like us for much longer than there have been cities. So why did humans begin to build cities when they did?
0: Uh, this, I, for this, I think David Clark's original answer, um, in his posthumously published paper, um, is still a really good one. He says, well, urbanism is a, it's a Holocene, um, innovation. It's something that we were not ready to do until we were agriculturalists, um, because you need to be sedentary. There are sedentary hunter-gatherer societies and have been many in the past, but, um, Uh, By and large, agriculture and the surplus food it produces is necessary to raise population levels to the point where urbanism is a viable strategy. It's not a necessary strategy, but once you've got these slightly denser populations, agriculturalists reducing the biodiversity around them, um, removing other predator species, getting involved in domestication of plants and animals. These are the kind of societies in which cities can arise. And what seems to me the most helpful way to say is, is we get to a point, a kind of threshold, where it doesn't take a lot um, to allow urbanisers to uh, to start urban experiments. And once they do, there are all sorts of advantages. And I don't believe there's a single reason. I don't believe that cities are created for defence or to... Uh, enable democracy or to consolidate tyranny or uh, to manage water systems. I mean, none of those single explanations really work. But as um, Clark put it, cities are an equifinal um, solution to a number of problems, a number of different kinds of problems that those sedentary agricultural societies encounter can be solved with a degree of complex organisation. Um, that happens on the spot. And that's not the only kind of solution. I think about other solutions created about the same sort of time. Nomadism is a, a good example of something created about the same time as cities, plus or minus a few thousand years, to do with domestication of new um, new animal species. Um, and in certain environments, cities are not brilliant solutions, but cities are are quite good solutions for these kind of societies and. Um, they've been tried again and again, and they've often failed. But in aggregate, the the general direction of travel is that, despite all these failures, enough of them succeed to transform the world into a world that is even more urbanizable. And that's why we're, I say in the book, we're on a sort of collective urban journey that we are heading towards a world in which you know, three quarters of us live in very large cities by the end of the 21st century.
1: Mm. And yet, obviously, the cities that we live in today are not like these early cities that um, you've now kind of helpfully explained how we ended up in them. So what were these early cities actually like to be in?
0: They're super diverse, Miranda. I mean, we have cities that seem to be quite low density, where most people are probably gardeners agriculturalists, horticulturalists. Um, quite a few cities seem to be have gaps in them. So this is true in the Mediterranean, early Etruscan, early Greek cities. There seem to be more like sort of clusters of villages interspersed with fields and gardens and cemeteries and then maybe coming together for a sanctuary occasionally. So you can get that. Or you can get cities that are amazingly dense. I mean, even some pre-urban settlements like Chattahuyuk are immensely dense. You have to climb over your neighbour's house to get into your own house. So there's a range of different routes in. They end up looking more similar, partly as a result of sort of, well, to put it bluntly, later imperialistic and colonial enterprises. The reason that town halls and libraries and law courts look the same over so much of the world is that the classicizing salute architectural solutions developed in the 18th and 19th century and exported by European powers. So in Korea and Japan and Sao Paulo, you'll end up seeing similar architectural types. But these these very early cities, they're, they're very diverse. I mean the perhaps the the one thing they have in common is that they have to be mainly supplied as far as food and water go from their immediate hinterland. They can they can take other stuff, timber, metals Uh, jewellery and so on for much further away but these early cities they depend on extraction from their neighbours from their non-urban neighbours.
1: That makes sense presumably yeah you you don't have refrigeration you don't have (laughs) ways of ensuring things don't spoil um, and you don't have to worry about that with jewellery when you do with fresh water so that would make sense that early cities um, both were quite diverse because I imagine it would be pretty heavily influenced by uh, your immediate geographic surroundings, what the city ends up looking like.
0: Oh, absolutely. The cities of southern Iraq, as it is today, are very different from the cities of uh, the Mississippi area and so on. So yes, the, you're right. And of course, materials as well. Do you build in wood? Do you build in stone? Um, uh, do, do you have to deal with floods or do you have to deal with drought? So yeah, all sorts of differences.
1: Mm-hmm. If we then sort of focus within that diversity, specifically around the Mediterranean, um, why did city building begin in this area when it did?
0: Uh, well, this is actually one of the questions that led me into the project to begin with, Miranda, because uh, as People are trained as classicists, and I was originally trained as a classicist—Greek and Latin, and um, ancient historical texts—and then archaeology filling in the gaps. That's not really what I do anymore, but that was my route in. And one of the things you encounter is constantly being told the ancient world is a world of cities. That ancient philosophers, when they imagine ideal societies, as Plato does, they imagine ideal cities. Um, uh, The uh, aristotle's great work on on political systems ta politica what politica in greek means is things to do with the city so we are taught this and then when you actually look at the material remains you think well hang on there's a kind of disconnect here because if you compare the cities of the ancient mediterranean that, that mostly pop up in the around the middle of the last millennium bc or the early first half of the last millennium BCE. and you compare them to what's gone on elsewhere. Well, they're much later than the cities of Egypt or of, um, of Anatolia, um, or particularly of northern and southern Iraq. So there's something like a 3,000 lead year lead if you want to think of it as a sort of as a race, which of course it isn't. but there are cities in it in, uh, in Bronze Age um, Mesopotamia and Egypt. Uh, 3,000 years before there's almost anything that you could consider a city in most of the Mediterranean. And not only do the cities come to the Mediterranean very late, but they tend to be very small, that the most Greek cities are smaller than that pre-urban agricultural village at Chatelhuyuk. They have populations in the low thousands, four or 5,000 people, which today would count as a village in most bits of the world. So... um, So I I did wonder, so how is this a world of cities if maybe no more than 10% of people, even in the most urbanised areas, live in cities, if most of the cities are really tiny, not all of them, but most of them are really tiny, if urbanisation comes so late that rather, you know, the classicist sees the ancient world as a world of cities, but the archaeologist or the anthropologist says, hey, look, this is a kind of latecomer and not very successful addition to all the urban centres that have been growing up around the world.
1: Hmm. quite interesting i can definitely see why that would motivate uh, further investigation to go Hmm. wait a second um i'd love to kind of expand on this idea especially around the mediterranean and you've already mentioned it right the idea that some things need to be really focused on the local environment and what can be done um but other things are more able to come from further away and you talk a lot about this in the book of networks being really important for the development and sustainment, really, of ancient cities. Can you tell us about kind of how these networks worked and why they were so important? Uh,
0: absolutely. I mean, it's an area which people are really exploring much more of now than they used to. But from very early on, when um, people began to look at Bronze Age, Mesopotamia, so southern Iraq, they realized that these earlier urban experiments were connecting to very distant places. So there was trade with um, the Indus Valley and what's now the Pakistan Northwest Indian border. So that must have been sea trade down the Persian Gulf and along there. We know from slightly later records that there were caravans of of mules and donkeys would go right the way up through Iraq, up onto the Anatolian Plateau and there'd be a trade of textiles and metals um, that Egypt and Mesopotamia as well when they needed really massive timbers because neither these areas have heavily forested they would go to what's now the Lebanon so we're seeing provisioning areas that are you know really quite quite extended and and other things lapis lazuli from from sort of um you know eastern Iran Afghanistan way and particular stone bowls from out there and our knowledge of this has only grown and yeah you know, one of the current sort of um fronts where people are particularly advancing this is looking at connections around the Indian ocean which turned out to have been a, a huge trading exchange area for for millennia and some of the things they're trading are these objects that turn up in text but some of them are things we can infer from biofacts, from from traces of of plants, of of seeds, eventually of spices and so on. So, those sorts of networks do they do seem to recur whenever we begin to get this, and you could do something similar um, around the Central America, the Caribbean, and Maya. Um, Cities connecting to quite distant, probably connecting to places which most Mayans had never seen, sometimes through middlemen. And the same is true of prehistoric Europe. And in some ways, the networks precede the cities in some cases. So uh, coral from the Mediterranean is found um, in a huge swathe of, um, of temperate Europe, northern Europe, um, and greenstone axes from uh, from Cumbria travel huge distances and so even in the Neolithic even in the first agricultural communities we see small instances of this very long distance exchange of of very rare exotica things that are highly valued and presumably rulers are putting a huge amount of energy whether that include actual cash probably not at this stage but into making things they can exchange for this into funding the exchanges and Cities only intensify this process and they they really do, partly, I guess, because they're generating per capita more surplus. uh, Partly because some of the products like timber and um, textiles are consumed in bulk in a way that lapis lazuli is never going to be consumed in bulk.
1: That would make sense. Um, And speaking of intensification, I want to kind of jump to the next intense bit around uh, the history of cities, in the period you look at which is of course the development of city states. Can you tell us a bit about how they kind of initially developed and then were able to thrive?
0: Yes there's some controversy here that there are people who think we should just think about state formation and regard cities as an aspect of it and I'm not one of them. I think that although there's a in many parts of the world there's a very close connection between the creation of cities and the creation of states there are parts of the world where states appear without cities, and also probably a smaller number of places where cities appear without states. So, um, a city-state, as classically defined, is um, it's a polity, a, a political entity, which has one single city dominating it, surrounded by a territory. Um, they, even in the Greek world, which is where the ideas about city-state would developed, they vary a lot. You get Tiny cities on islands, which you know, it's just, just the one settlement on an island, and then you get city-states like Athens, which dominates the Attican peninsula and has within it sort of maybe almost a dozen things that look pretty much like cities if they were independent. So but a city-state is essentially that it's something where if you like the political organization of the city and the political organization of territory find a convergence.
1: And how does that change kind of what ancient cities look like and do and develop from that point?
0: I suppose one area it does change, I suppose, is that um, cities don't always look spectacular, but the cities that are uh, that can marshal the power of state enterprises can begin to invest in the things that make cities look amazing to us. So... Um, In the Greek and Etruscan world, this would mean um, major temple building. Um, In some places, it means great palaces. Uh, In some places, wall building. And then also the the creation of of significant infrastructure, harbours, roads, Uh, paved monumental processional routes, big open, there are always open spaces in cities for people to gather. But when you start having them sort of given an architectural framework, so given made like an amphitheater in a Roman city or the panics that the um, Athenians met on um, or um, the ball courts around which um, Mayan rituals rotated, then that kind of making the, making the social complexity of the city visible in material and then using material things to reinforce social structures. This is something that, that is highly characteristic of city-states.
1: Hmm. That would make sense that kind of, as you said, the intensification of lots of things enable that sort of thing. And it's certainly, uh, I think, what a lot of us remember ancient cities for. Um, and part of that is because even as political structures Uh, develop further or change further they keep a lot of the things about city states um, including for example the architecture that we now look at so i was wondering if you could help us understand why empires as they arose you alluded to them uh, more modern ones briefly earlier but why even with ancient empires why did they like city states and keep them even when they didn't necessarily have to
0: I think there's a sort of a the, the sort of a, a mixture of sort of pragmatic and symbolic answers to that. I mean, at the pragmatic level, um, ancient empires, uh, some of them are very extensive. You know, no state has ever existed in Europe bigger than the Roman Empire. Um, the Chinese empires, sort of successive Chinese empires from the second century BCE, uh, absolutely enormous and. They're doing this in conditions of very low technology. Communication, the tyranny of distance constantly affects them. It's very difficult to get information from the centre to the edge. Many empires send their kings off like on itinerant monarchies moving around just to deal with this. But um one of the things that empires always need is some is, is a sort of lower-level structure which they can use to. Uh, to govern, to do the bare minimum, which is enforce order, loyalty, and extract surplus, and cities are quite a good way of doing this. If you're expanding your empire into an area with cities already, uh, or if you've got experience of cities, as the Romans did, and can found new ones, then the city is a kind of um, it's a kind of go-to plug-in. You you can use it to uh, to manage things. That's not the only thing you can manage. We can think of other examples. Um, uh, kinship networks are also things that you can mobilize you think about uh, Mongol empires which which mobilize a huge range of social structures for their even bigger empires which stretch from from the borders of Poland to, to the China Sea or think about feudal kingdoms which which make use of local relations between landlords and peasants between warriors and um, and serfs uh, and then reconstruct them so when um, the Holy Land is taken over uh, by the Crusaders. They can just roll out a social political order overnight that that is based on on feudal precedents in in Western Europe. So the city isn't the only tool you can use, but you need something. What you can't do is you can't put in place a huge centralised bureaucracy with intense communication, and so on, because that, that really is much too expensive, particularly in the early days of empire. So that's the pragmatic thing that cities. They already collect tax, they already enforce order, you just change them, you know, get them to change the um, the receipt uh, of where, where the money's going. So when Rome takes over Sicily, its first province, um, it finds that a large part of Sicily is being run by the city state of Syracuse, which has tyrants of its own, and the latest of which is named Hyro. And so the Romans just established the Lex Hieronica, where all the Jews that used to go to Hyro now go to Rome. So this is this is the low cost. Keep your transaction costs low. So empires have often metabolized cities. So when the other that's that's the pragmatic reason. The other reason is that so many um, empires were developed by people who population had grown up in cities. So when Carthage or Athens or Rome creates an empire, it already has a notion of political culture that derives from its urban heritage. So, so those two things, I think, reinforce themselves in, in some parts of the world.
1: Mm. that makes a lot of sense kind of the practical and also just the that's what you're used to so of course that's what you sort of replicate and recognize especially going back to what you're saying at the beginning that um, cities are so recognizable even across cultures um, that that would make sense that that continues um, but now that you've kind of explained to us um, obviously the rise of the city the city states um, monumental cities can you tell us about what enabled the next sort of piece that you talk about, megacities? How did that happen, and what were they like?
0: Um, a a megacity. I it's a it's a it's a very vague term I picked, but um, it's something that we see in imperial states, which um, is that a small number of cities grow to an extraordinary size. They're they're physically an extraordinary size, but also their populations are very large. So we're talking hundreds of thousands, sometimes up to a million in in the um, Islamic Middle Ages, even bigger in Babylon, uh, in Baghdad. Um, So the creation of these cities is always the result of an act of political will. And sometimes they're actually laid out from scratch. So something like Constantine, refounding an old Greek city, Byzantium, and turning it into Constantinople by an act of will. Or even more clear, the great cities built by Assyrian monarchs, Nimrod, Nineveh, um, or Persian ones, Persepolis, and so on. And entire populations are transported, whether they like it or not, to live in these cities and to live around them and to survive for them. But the thing they have in common, apart from just being spectacular... Hubristic creations is that they require political power to provision them um, because there simply isn't enough food and other resources around in their immediate hinterlands. And typically, these mega cities shrivel away almost as soon as that power weakens. So they they shrink as you know. Rome at its early imperial peaks, probably about eight hundred thousand, a million people. By the early Middle Ages, 40,000, which is still quite big. Um, We'll see similar collapses for the short-lived imperial capital's emperors built at places like Trier and York and Sofia and Bulgaria and so on. Um, The same is true of the great cities of Assyria and so on. So a a, a sufficiently powerful monarch can create a new city, and it becomes almost the kind of things monarchs have to do in some... In some cultures, it looks like it looks like in the new Assyrian Empire. To be a proper emperor, you have to create a new city with a great palace and a great wall circuit, and temples to the gods, and maybe a huge library of cuneiform tablets and so on. Um, And then your successor, if they don't do something similar but somewhere else, um, looks a bit sort of more shabby. So that those are those mega cities, and they. What you end up with, if you look at these societies as a whole, Miranda, is you end up with worlds in which there are very large numbers of minute cities, tiny cities, a few thousand, and then a very tiny number of really big ones. Now, the Roman stuff I know best, maybe never more than half a dozen cities over 100,000 out of 2,000 cities, most of which, you know, three-quarters of which have less than 5,000 people. So it's a really steep curve, Um what we call a primate curve, if you plot it. You have small numbers of high values, very large numbers of low values. And the only other kind of societies that have primate curves quite like that are those that have been really dramatically colonised. So if you look around um, areas where British, French, other imperialists, um, Spanish, created urban systems, you'll find huge cities, and then vast hinterlands where they're just tiny. And so it wasn't the same route, it wasn't colonialism from outside, but you end up with something rather similar a small number of mega cities, megalopolis, and then this vast background of tiny ones.
1: Mm. An interesting, um, I can almost visualize it on a map in some sort of way, it would look quite interesting. Um, but as we come towards kind of the end of your book, You obviously have hinted a little bit at this already, of kind of what might cause particularly megacities to decline, um, especially if they're not always the most robustly um, sustainable in the first place. But why do you think megacities in particular and cities in general really see quite a big decline in the first few centuries of the Common Era?
0: I mean, perhaps the first thing to say is that... uh, this feature, which happens in um, in the Mediterranean, particularly Western Europe, so between sort of 200 and 800, a dip, um, is not the only dip. All around the world, there are urban systems that are out of sync with each other, are growing and then collapsing. People talk about the classic Maya collapse, there are periods of intense urbanisation in India, followed by long... There's, there's a big gap between the great Bronze Age cities of Mohenjo-daro and um, Harappa, the Harappan civilization, and the Iron Age cities that grow up in India and associated with the Vedic civilization uh, sometime later. So it's not unusual for these urban systems to sort of um, collapse down. And what's seen the most resilient bit of the whole thing is the relationship between farmers and the land. Agriculture almost never stops. Um, small villages persist. So you could, if you like, think about early urbanism as building successive houses of cards on, on strong foundations. Never every so often the cards fall down, you've still got those strong foundations there, sedentary agricultural societies, uh, which are mostly provisioned locally. And then at the later stage, they'll start building up again. And um, that's more or less what happens in um, in the western part of the Mediterranean. What's the local cause? The local cause is um, a big part of it is political collapse, where you haven't got a tax system, where you haven't got a few mega cities to provision, like Rome, uh, where um, there's less control over the mobility of people, so people really can disperse and live where they want in areas which are. Um, which are best to live in, then some of those pressures that sustain urbanism go away. So urbanism is not unnatural. It always has to be kept going. So that's one of the things that happens. Um, it's not general. Even in the Roman Empire, there are cities in the East which survive and flourish for centuries after cities in the West. In the West, not much urban building after 200. In the West, there are spectacular cities in the 6th century. Um, there are great new urban projects as well, and then we think about the post-Roman world. Um, Byzantium, the city of Constantinople, flourishes in an empire that has virtually no other cities for for centuries. Um, but just on its borders, you have the Abbasid world, um, in which urbanism is flourishing. So they're all a bit out of sync. If you could imagine yourself on a sort of on a satellite an alien observer of the first few thousand years spinning round the globe, you would look down and you'd see sort of urban networks flourish and then collapse, but but not not altogether. There's no global catastrophe. Now I mean one thing that we're less clear about is whether um fluctuations in global climate might have some part to play in this. And The general idea is pretty simple. It's that if you have periods where agricultural productivity goes down or where, because it's a bit colder or where the amount of soil that can be cultivated is reduced, this might undermine the whole system. But the difficult bit is when you then try to apply this to any individual area, if you try and look at Western Asia Minor, or you try and look at the Aegean world or you look at Northwest India or you look at Egypt, it's not more complicated. Climate change is all about the local. It's all about the interaction of these occasion, vast trends like sort of fluctuations in sunspot activity, uh, with local ecological regimes, with local uh, physical geography, and also with the different resilience of different societies. So um, I do think climate probably has a big part to play in this story but I don't think it's going to work by being a sort of lever offstage to the right. You pull it and the cities collapse, you push it up and they grow again.
1: That would be a little bit too neat to be a true historical explanation, I think. Is-
0: wouldn't it just? Wouldn't it just?
1: <laughs> it would. Um, I wonder if... Uh, in the last, my last few questions for you, this is obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning, a project and a question and something you've been thinking about for quite a long time and explored in lots of different ways and brought many different areas of knowledge and literatures together um, in this book in incredibly helpful and illuminating ways. And I wonder if there's anything that immediately comes to mind, thinking about that process you've gone through, of anything that when you came across it was surprising to you?
0: Um. I discovered lots of things, because I'm a specialist on the Mediterranean and European prehistory, I discovered lots of things I didn't know about um, other parts of the world. And um, yeah, among recent advances that are particularly interesting, there's the uh, exploration of early Amazonian settlements, so which have been explored largely with LiDAR technology, which is essentially radar, but using laser beams instead of sound waves. And yeah, until re- very recently, people imagined that the Amazon was this huge, dense forest area that had barely been settled by anyone, apart from groups like today's Yanomani. And it's pretty clear there are big areas of the Amazon that, in, in the last few thousand years, sustained something like urban settlements. And the whole question of tropical urbanism is something really interesting, because yeah, we're, we're, the ways we had learned to look for cities in dry environments like Mesopotamia and Egypt are not very good at spotting cities in areas like Cambodia and um, Guatemala and um, sub-Saharan Africa. And I do suspect that in 20 years' time, we'll have a picture that is altered by vast amounts of new data from the tropical world from from Maybe we'll know much more about sub-Saharan Africa where we really just have a few hints. Um, we'll certainly know a lot more about um, about South America. It Maybe we know a bit more about Australia where there's quite a lively debate at the moment as you probably know about the extent to which agriculture and horticulture might have existed in Australia before um, European contact. And um, this it's a hugely contentious issue and very politicized, but um, just as people a while ago would have imagined that North America is entirely populated by savages, and then we know about the mound builders, Mississippi, huge settlements like Cahokia, their own urban experiments, which uh, disappeared under sometimes a bit before Europeans arrived, but sometimes under the impact of of diseases and um, other unpleasant things brought by um by Western settlers, we may be able to tell similar stories to other parts of the world. so, I think I'm on the lookout for not so much for a more precise knowledge of what's happening in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamia. I'm sure that will come, but it's for game-changing information from from areas that were not part of the early 20th century archaeological exploration of cities.
1: Mm. That definitely makes sense as things to be excited about watching out for, particularly given uh, newer technology like LiDAR that can do all sorts of really cool things. Um, I've seen videos and all sorts that is fascinating. As my last question, um, I would love to ask a little bit about in terms of things to look out for in general in the field, you've given us a lovely answer, um, but is there anything in particular that you're working on now or next that you'd like to tell us a little bit
0: about? I'm a very disorganized scholar, Miranda, and I always have too <laughs> many projects on, on the hard disk, um, but i um, uh, the thing that perhaps connects most closely with this is um, uh, is work I'm doing on mobility. And there's been a huge increase in studies of mobility and people are yeah, started by combing the text and then looking at artifact mobility and now looking at mobility of, of species and um, of pathogens and linguistic indices. So I, I, I'm trying to get a bit more of a sense of this, and we very broadly speaking in the ancient world we moved from a situation where people said well no one ever travelled very much, it was all small boats, rough seas Um, isolated little worlds, and then maybe 20 years ago we moved to radical reassessments of that. Every Everywhere was connected to everywhere else, and people were moving like crazy. Uh, and that's also clearly not true, and the actual world is not like the modern world. There was no easy jet, you know, there's no Ryanair, there's no quick way to sort of get from, from Taraco to uh, to Antioch on the Orontes and so on. So what I'm trying to do is to try to refine a picture of, of mobility. And some of the fun things to do with this are, who moves and what circumstances? Well, most people don't. I mean, most people move within a local area, but a a tiny proportion. Uh, Maybe one in a thousand, one in two thousand make a long distance journey every year. Virtually all of them are men. Almost no women move long distance in the ancient world unless as slaves, or a tiny proportion who are, say, the wives of governors or generals who travel with their husbands. So, it's an ancient world where the women stay at home mostly, and the men move about. There's a lot of one-way journeys as well. There's lots of you know, displacements that never go back. Slavery, a big bit of it, but also military movements and so on. So, so mobility in the ancient world is the area that i I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm Think about for the next the next book anyway. Mm.
1: Well, that sounds very interesting. Um, if that does end up being a book, I'm sure we'll hope to entice you back to tell us more about it. Um I'd love to do that. Brilliant. Well, in the meantime, while you're off investigating that, um, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which as a reminder is titled The Life and Death of Ancient Cities and Natural History from Oxford University Press. Dr. Greg Wolf, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.